Welcome to the Health Leader Forge, where today's health leaders help to forge the leaders of tomorrow. I'm your host, Mark Bonica, of the University of New Hampshire's Department of Health Management and Policy and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Our website is healthleaderforge.org, where you can find information about subscribing to the podcast, links and information related to the episode, as well as our complete archives. Today's guest is Greg Townsend, the Vice President of Business Intelligence and Analytics at Commonwealth Care Alliance in Boston. Greg's path to leadership in health analytics traces the coming of age of analytics in healthcare. Greg's educational background began in public health working with disease management and health promotion, which led him to roles in risk management and quality improvement, two fields that rely heavily on data. These early roles helped him develop the skill set that he uses today to support the Commonwealth Care Alliance's mission of providing health care to some of Massachusetts' most needy citizens. The podcast concludes with Greg's thoughts on leadership and his advice to people who are interested in entering the field of health analytics. You are listening to the extended version of the podcast, an abridged version of the interview that focuses only on Greg's work at Commonwealth Care Alliance is also available. Please see our website for the link to that version of the interview. Welcome to The Forge, Greg. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You had received your bachelor's degree from Plymouth State College, now Plymouth State University, in health promotion. How did you choose Plymouth State and how did you get interested in health promotion? Well, my career academically kind of took a spin. So I, I started at UNH um, in the zoology program and quite honestly, the, my funds ran out in terms okay. of staying at UNH. Yeah. So at the time, was interested in health promotion and, and maybe even pre-med track, the health education or pre, uh, pre-med track. And, um, and that was the only option available to me at the time. And I'm glad that I went there. They have an excellent health promotion community, uh, health promotion department there. So that's how I landed. It was, it was almost a, an issue of trying to find the best fit for me at the time, given the financial resources that were available and what was you know, available in the state. So Okay. Yeah. And you did it. Did you do an internship through that program at Concord Hospital? Yeah. So one of the nice things about the, the program up there is they have a fellowship program that awards, is awarded academically. And uh, so I was fortunate enough to get that fellowship. And with that came my desire to work at Concord Hospital to do some health promotion activity with their medical staff and uh, nursing staff, which was quite interesting. It was my first really entree into the acute care side of medicine, which, you know, other than having broken a couple bones in life, I've <laughs> never been in there. Okay. So it was your first exposure to actually working in a hospital, hospital environment. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So after you graduated from Plymouth, you headed south to North Carolina. Yeah. So my, my wife is a nursing student graduate from UNH, uh, and she and I grew up together. Uh, she and I both were looking for job opportunities in the market, which is actually pretty hot at, the, at that time, and found the Research Triangle Park, North Carolina being a really great opportunity for both of our sides of the industry. And I had heard through the grapevine that there was gonna be some expansion in some disease management activity and a plan down there. My wife had great you know, ties with some of the nursing programs. So she actually was employed first. I went down, found the job, but knew there was going to be 
some time before it would open up and the opportunity would be there. And in the interim, took an interesting job okay. well, <laughs> to bridge me over. So um, I had the, we lived in a small suburb of Durham called Butner. And if you know anything about Butner, you know that it's got a federal penitentiary, it's got a state hospital, it's got all these, these institutions that really make up the, organ, the, the entire community. So being it was you know, a few miles from where we lived, I applied as a, I guess it would be a parole interviewer or um, basically someone who screens potential parolees in a formatted way to go on to the parole board wow. at uh, Butner Federal Penitentiary. Okay. And it was a scary place to work. Uh, my first day at work, I recall going there in a suit and tie and was immediately warned about wearing anything that could be uh, used against me and asked me to remove my time before I went <laughs> into my first day at work. So I lasted there probably about a week and a half or two weeks. Oh, no. <laughs> uh, and then found other work before starting at the Blues. Okay. All right. So in 1995, you were hired as a preventive health risk assessment coordinator by the Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina. How did you find the position and uh, what were the duties of the position and what was your preparation for it? Yeah, so f finding the position was interesting. <laughs> I, uh, I, I had, it was called this the whole idea of risk assessment. I knew nothing about, and I had been told that the Blues Plan in North Carolina was going to be building this multi-state disease management program, which was something I had interest in academically. But when I got down to North Carolina, I saw this position open up. A friend of mine had made me aware of it. And which is common, I think, um, with kids and or folks that are coming out of college, that is sometimes the the lingo that gets in the way of what it is you're willing to apply for. So I spent an incredible amount of time trying to research just exactly what risk assessment meant in a health plan setting, and actually called some folks at UNC to ask them about what that actually meant, and was able to get some insights as to. Uh, what what uh, health plan risk assessment activity w would mean. So that helped me in the interview process. And in that interview process, they, I found out most of this activity was using the community-based health improvement knowledge base I'd gained through my undergraduate degree. Okay. So it was interesting because it was, at the time, the 10th largest disease management program that was started from the ground up. And excellent from a career opportunity to be able to see something from its inception or its, 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 its creation of an idea all the way through implementation. So you've used the phrase disease management a couple of times. For people who are not familiar with that concept, what is it you're talking about? So essentially primary and secondary disease prevention. So if you think about smoking cessation as a disease management technique, trying to avoid other types of primary and secondary prevention or trying to, to, to use primary and secondary prevention activities to avoid the onset or progression of chronic illness. Okay. So, so chronic illness would co coming from, say, smoking, like lung disease or things. You're, right, you're trying right. to stop it before it even progresses to that Correct. point. Correct. Okay. And in particular, there's you know, things like smoking, diabetes, asthma, these chronic conditions that, that have uh, conjoined comorbidities that go along with it, that's, that um, the health plans have every interest from both a population health management and a financial 
opportunity to make sure that their subscribers are maintaining their health well. And so in the early mid-90s, this was still a pretty new idea for it was most, most health plans. It was, and I, and I think the the idea of return on that investment was new. I think the, at the time, health plans had a hope that this would return, would offer a return, um, and that's been much in debate since then, and even today, what the actual return on investment is for these types of programs. Okay, so you spent two years, it looks like there, and then you left. You left and and went to New York City as a program manager for uh, ProHealth, and then from there you, you moved over to, in 97, you moved up to Boston to work as a program manager for Clinical Quality Partnerships for Harvard Pilgrim. What did you learn in those first couple of jobs? Yeah, so I think, you, you know, in terms of developing the career is, or my career at that time was understanding the industry, health, the health plan experience at the Blues really helped me understand how a health plan operates different from a provider. And, okay. and one of the other things, the, 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 the stay coming up through New York City, basically my wife and I are trying to move back home. Okay. So we wanted to come back home. We were getting married. Uh-huh. And the experience at ProHealth um, introduced me to corporate health promotion. Okay. Uh, so what I was ProHealth at the time? ProHealth is Edwards. and was a uh, corporate health promotion company. So what they did is they uh, contracted with big employer groups to manage their population health. And so at the time, uh, my responsibilities were Northeast Utilities, which included PSNH, which is no longer PSNH. Right. It's Eversource now, I think, something like that. Um, So, yeah, so it it gave me an an insight on the health plan side, the employer side, and then through my time at Harvard Pilgrim, um, actually more both the health plan side and the acute care side. So supplier quality management in my role there was – uh, Harvard Pilgrim offered to its major, uh, let's say, health plan partners like you know the Partners Healthcare, or even some of the bigger hospitals that that were aligned with Harvard Pilgrim, expertise in preparing for joint commission accreditation or any other types of quality improvement activities. Okay, so you're so, now moving into at Harvard Pilgrim, you were moving into quality improvement. Correct, which has kind of become a major theme for your. Career. Yeah, and that's you know it's interesting because my father always jokes with me that uh, that he was the seed of all that. So Is that he, right? yeah, so he 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 was a computer engineer and had a very heavy focus in his career on quality improvement, and it actually required my brother and I to learn some basic Dale Carnegie type concepts of quality improvements. Okay. And we both read the some of the Deming books and, you know, it was... While it, you were growing up. While we were growing up, yeah. Wow. In our teen years. Uh-huh. It wasn't that bad. So <laughs> in our teen years, we, he would he would ask us to do it and incentivize us to do it. But, but the moment I forgot totally about it, and uh-huh. both my brother and I have kind of uh, circled back to the quality end of things in, our, in the middle of our careers. And so that was great that he actually did that in retrospect. Okay. So what were you doing at... Harvard Pilgrim. So we had uh, uh, contracts or through our, our managed care contracts with folks like BI Deaconess and uh, the Jocelyn Center. A lot of the work that we did was focused on joint commission, helping them support their, their joint commission accreditation. But then we also put together one of the first extended care rounding programs in the state. Okay. So what that is, is if you imagine a loved one being in a subacute or skilled facility in a nursing home, essentially, 
that their the, the chances of their primary care doctor actually walking through those doors and rounding on those patients is very limited. There's a time disincentive, there's a financial disincentive for their primary care doctor to care for them in that setting of care. And not only that, most primary care doctors are not you know, steeped in that experience of caring for a member or, or, or a patient in that setting of care, anyhow. So what ends up happening is there are gaps and their care associated with that. So this program was, it leads to, you know, things like extended lengths of stay, issues with, with quality and cost. So Harvard Pilgrim took the, the perspective that they could create a more U, uh, organized approach to manage care for, for patients in those settings. So if you and I were physicians, we would delegate the rounding and care of the patients in the, from, a, from a physician perspective to a group of nurse practitioners who would have ready contact and regular contact, contact with a patient's physician and that patient. So there was you know, good communication back and forth and better care coordination. So that was very successful, still in place today actually. Oh, neat. Now Harvard Pilgrim is, a, um, is an insurance company. Right. right? They're an HMO. Uh, primarily, or is they, do they do other? No, Harvard Pilgrim is, is uh, well, yeah, they have had over the, the many iterations of Harvard Pilgrim, HMO, different types of okay. products. They've okay. had uh, so Medicare more. Advantage plans, things okay. like that. Yeah. Okay, all right. So you stayed at, at Harvard Pilgrim until 1999 when you moved up to the Elliott Health System in Manchester where you were the executive director of the Division of Performance Improvement. Uh, and we just interviewed uh, Bridget Stewart, who is now the vice president of, of physician services at Elliott. So hmm. if you want a little more about that, you can listen to her interview. Um, but what did, you, what did you do in this position? Yeah, so um, my role initially was to, uh, at the time, Elliott and Catholic Medical Center were uh, joined together under an agreement called Optima. So it was a holding company for both, they merged both hospitals in Manchester. Uh, that was a tough sell for the, for the city and for the community and it didn't work well. Uh, so it, within a matter of years, that, that merger started to dissolve, literally unravel. And, and so as it was unraveling, the Elliott had a need for someone to come in and to help with a recovery of a very bad I should say poor joint commission accreditation that they had had in the past year. Okay. So they were due to be reaccredited. So that's where I came in. So they wanted somebody to be the director of uh, clinical value measurement, what I think it was at the time, and to lead this new joint commission accreditation and to help the medical staffs that were involved with um, both hospitals demerge. Okay. And there's a bunch of regulatory stuff caught up in that that I had some expertise in. So your experience at Harvard Pilgrim working with the Joint Commission, correct, kind of led you to this to being to having the appropriate skill set to come in and take on this job. Correct, correct. So for people who are not familiar with the pleasure of of going through a Joint Commission <laughs> experience, what is Joint What is Joint Commission? What does it do? So, so they're a, a, an accreditation body that that has a set of uh, requirements and standards that hospitals need to meet around quality, safety, 
productivity, all sorts of things, access to care. Um, and their accreditation is a function for most hospitals to have rights of participation in Medicare services. So this is a vital thing that a hospital needs to do. Absolutely. It's not just a nice to have. If, if, you, if you don't do this, you cannot bill Medicare. Correct. Yeah. And that's, you know, in some cases up to 60, 70% of their business. Okay. So it's a, it's a, a, a big concern for sure. Yeah. I jokingly say a pleasure having, having gone through it twice yeah. myself, yes. twice, three times, I think, actually. Uh, it's, a, it's an intense experience to go through that for an organization. It is. And, and so and that there's, right, there's been a, a lot of back and forth about how much of that pain and effort is constructive and the expense associated with it, how much is, has it been uh, really constructive in terms of improving the safety and quality of our delivery system. Now, I will say Joint Commission has done an amazing amount of work in the last decade to, ch to turn that around, to turn around the burden on the, the healthcare systems that they're accrediting, to make the standards more in line with their operations, less parochial, more developmental, and embody more of the quality improvement mindset. Yeah. And, but it's, it's still, especially at that time, it really required somebody with some skill to kind of coordinate yeah, absolutely. Uh, the organization and its response to. Correct. Yeah. Uh, what else were you working on at that time? Because my sense from reading your CV was quality was not the only thing you were responsible for. Yeah, so when I got there, I had the fortune of, of I was very fortunate in, in kind of being at the right place at the right time and uh, assumed a number of other uh, responsibilities in the health system, which included social work, case management, even pastoral care, which I knew nothing about. And what has been, I found very, very interesting and enlightening, trauma and ED services, uh, nurse call center. And that kind of rounded out the, the division of performance improvement. It was kind of an interesting mix. If you hear the mix of services, you, one would wonder, some of those things don't seem to belong together. And the, the rationale was we had built a core performance improvement unit and the idea was to take units that needed real, you know, breakthrough improvement to occur. And certainly, for example, are the emergency services at the time required it would be moved into the division of performance improvement almost as an incubator for improvement for a period of time. So I would work hand in glove with our CN, our chief nurse executive and other of the senior executives at the Elliott's who had line authority over the staff to be able to manage these improvements day to day. And that was an effective way of, of managing it. Strange, wow. but or different, I should say, but yeah. effective. Yeah. So you were administrative director then? You, Correct. What kind of, so for, for the emergency mm -hmm. services? Correct. So what, what kind of things were, but you didn't supervise the actual staff? No. So the, 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 the exactly. Yeah. So you could see how that would work well and be a challenge in other cases. It yeah. worked out very well matrixed. for us. Right. Because we had a very strong CNO at the time who quite honestly, I think, looked for the expertise and really wanted to have the, the hands-onness, if you will, of the quality improvement staff in their operations to make some of the 
real strongly needed improvements that were needed at the time. But within the organization, the understanding was this is not a permanent arrangement. Correct. You said an incubator, so the intent was eventually it would be pushed back out yes, on its own. Yes, absolutely. Okay. So it was an interesting approach, you know, and I think in looking back at it, it's very personnel dependent, right? So if, if, you, if you don't have the right personnel in that situation, it's not something that you can just pick up as an idea and plug into a different organization. It really requires the close connectivity between executive leads, both in the nursing and in this case, a performance improvement department. But so, it, but if you can grab that, it, it does seem like an effective approach. All right. Um, what kind of leadership lessons did you learn from? Because that's what it sounds like. This was a significant leadership improvement situation. So, what did you, you know, prior to that, had you had this kind of level of um, supervisory experience? No, no. This was definitely a cold glass of water in the face in, in my career. This is a big quantum leap forward. Um, from my, my what I had done before in my career and a challenge, I learned a lot. I think that, that yeah, I was young, you know, at the time. I was in my 20s trying to figure all this out. And I think what I really learned was that, that it's not something that you need to borrow the experience of others that have, have been more, uh, bring more veneration in terms of their own exposure to the same issues. And so I've had a, 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 the pleasure of having great mentors in my career. And the first mentor in this situation uh, cautioned me that as a new executive, I should listen twice as much as I speak. And, you know, she was right. I think I learned a lot by trying to listen to the, the folks that I worked with and understand their perspective and trying, rather than trying to direct their perspective. And so it, obviously direction is a big piece of leadership but I think, especially as someone who's trying to cut their teeth in the industry, you have a lot to learn before you have the wisdom to be directive. But you also had senior leaders who were going to sustain their positions, like you said, a CNO. Correct. Um, so you were able to use their authority, work with them, work with their authority. Interesting. So what was the, because you didn't necessarily have direct supervisory responsibility for the people, what were the challenges that you well, faced with that? Well, yeah, at the time there was a change in the medical staff leadership in, in the emergency services there. And I think that was, that was a difficult time for the entire organization, probably even for the community, because the, 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 leader, the, the leadership that had been at, in the emergency department from a physician's perspective had been there for a long time. And so what I think ended up happening was we ended up finding folks from outside the organization to come in and really take over and not just replace or, or sorry, not just substitute for some of the, the folks who had been there before, but completely replace them. And, you know, some of the folks that had been in the emergency department before uh, remained, but the big challenge was to try to allow another medical staff to come in and, and find comfort with the staff that are in place at the time and really be effective. And so it was up to us as a leadership group to try to uh, clear the, the roadblocks that would be in the way to making that happen. What did you see and work on as a, as a leadership team to kind of turn the organization around? What was, what was 
going wrong with it that you needed to, to fix? So the heart of the issue in the emergency services had to do with the actual service end of the business. So it wasn't the provision of care, it was more so wait times seemed exceedingly long, turnaround times for things that should take no time at all, it took forever. So a lot of it was process engineering. And so one of the things that I've heard in my career all along is, look, Greg, you're not a nurse, you're not a clinician. How can you be effective in a quality role as not being a clinician? And the response I always have is that, because this has been my observation, most of the quality improvements that we see in healthcare today have very little to do with the, with the actual provision or the decisions made to treat one way or another, but have more to do with the systems that surround them. So the, the focus was really integrating the systems around the issues to do things like reduce wait times, improve patient satisfaction, and in so doing that, be, it allowed us to be not only effective in, in improving the experience of our patients, but also had a positive financial impact. You worked at the Elliott until 2003 when you moved back to Boston to take on the Senior Director of Performance Improvement and Medical Staff Affairs at Tufts New England Medical Center in Boston. So Tufts is a, another hospital system, mm -hmm. but how is Tufts different than Elliott? Many, many ways. So in many ways, they were similar. The, the, the one thing I will say, Mark, is that in my career, I've, I've started to see a pattern evolving, which was getting involved at the outset of, our, of kind of major change or opportunities in organizations is something that I was attracted to. In this case, New England Medical Center is an academic medical center. So uh, the, at the time when I went to New England Medical Center, now Tufts, we had, Tufts was in a position where it was losing a lot of money on the brink of receivership and needed, they lost their CEO and was in dire straits and needed some turnaround activity. So I was brought in first to lead uh, a turnaround at, uh, activity at, at Tufts with a new, at the time, COO. So he and I and the chief of medicine were the triad folks who were uh, leading a financial turnaround, um, financial and operational, I should say, turnaround for them. And so very different from my experience um, at, at the Elliott, certainly the Elliott, uh, a lot of the issues at the Elliott had to do with this Optima demerger and the fallout of that. This really had to do with a boutique hospital, academic medical center in downtown Boston, being in a very competitive market. And so first trying to tie up and, and, and shore up their operations uh, to squeeze out waste and redundancy in the organization and then become market competitive in the, in the area. Okay. So based on your description, it seems you are more explicitly focused on PI, though with a heavy emphasis on performance evaluation and physician compensation. What was that, what was that like? So the, the performance improvement and quality improvement activity there was a bit different from what I had seen prior to that and such that um, I, I found it more academically oriented. So, you know, for example, one thing that comes to mind is a project impact piece of work that we had done. And project impact is a, a notion out of the IMI that where there's a certain focus for improvement in the hospital. And this setting was in the surgical ICU and the medical ICUs. 
and reducing pneumonias and all sorts of other related issues about patients being in ICU. The intensity of the involvement of the, the intensivists that were in that program um, was amazing to me. So where I found that enticing a, a clinician into a quality improvement activity on in the community setting, as it were in the Elliott, was very difficult at times because they have so many other distractions that oftentimes clinicians that are in, physicians that are in an academic setting have academic responsibilities and research-oriented responsibilities and are that will gravitate towards these things. So it's very refreshing in that way. So they were actually, they were probably more than happy to have you come in and give them, Absolutely. Give them some assistance. They saw us as um, uh, our unit as a resource to help them get some of that work some done. Some of that research that yeah. they're probably working on. Which was, you know, just fantastic. Yeah, neat. So as part of the, the turnaround efforts that you were doing, what, what kind of changes to staff arrangements or things like that did you, did you implement? Yeah, so, you know, there were, we had supply chain issues that we needed to deal with, you know, better payer contracts, all sorts of things that on the, on the expense and revenue side that needed to take care of. And then we had structural things. So our ambulatory care services um, had a fractured approach to doing scheduling and all sorts of time management issues that needed to be resolved. So we brought in some technology to shore that up. We streamlined the, the, the organization's electronic medical record system. It was the first one that had been implemented there in order to create more efficiencies and improvements in uh, communication of patient information throughout the organization. It just, I, you know, I, there, there was no end to it, it seemed. So we, we really went stem to stern, and we looked at every big piece of operations in the organization, including the way the pharmacy operates and how its picking system works, everything. How did you, I mean, there were three of you kind of heading this up. You had a division, of, uh, so you had some staff working for you to help you. How did you prioritize where you put your attention because you can't do the whole thing all at once no so it's a very good question so while there were three people you know kind of trying to orchestrate this that by no means uh, was the end of it there was we had division heads from every service that was involved directly it was a mandate from our board um, as you can imagine to, to to do this turnaround we had our vp of operations directly involved so we had a big operational group to do this, but to your question about prioritization, that was very difficult at times because sometimes the, the return on a, an intervention that you want to make may be two or three years down the road, but clinically very relevant. And so there was this, there was this ongoing balance that I actually found very effective that it had to do with what do we need immediately to return to, to find our returns that we needed to, to make the, the organization financially stable? And what did we do to put in place to make our long-term viability of the clinical operations secure? And so what I liked about it was it was never an optimization always towards the near-term savings, that there was a, an understanding that we needed to make investments in our clinical infrastructure for downstream improvements. You stayed at Tufts until about 2006 when you moved uh, again to be the Senior Director of Report Development and Manager of Quality Management for Health Dialogue Analytics Solutions. So you move now from 
direct care right. back to sort of a consulting role? Actually, Health Dialogue is in principle a disease management company. Okay. Um, and then the spinoff of Health Dialogue Analytic Solutions is, you know, is a think tank, the analytic think tank that drives the disease, the, the disease management company, whose forcing function was most, mostly around nurse call centers. So there was this idea that there was a, a management infrastructure put in place to help patients manage their, their health through disease management. And the analytic side of the house drove who should get what, right? The, okay. the, the know-how of what types of approaches should we point at which populations. Okay. And so when I, when I left Tufts to come there, it was, an, again, an opportunity to move home. My son was, was just born. I wanted to be closer to home. Okay. And uh, one of their bases of operations is in Bedford, New Hampshire. Okay. okay. Um, so I split my time between Bedford and, and State Street in Boston. So the, the role there was very, very different from anything I'd, I'd seen to date. Uh, it was the first, no kidding, for-profit organization I'd worked for. And... That's right, because everything you've worked for before was nonprofit. Correct. On, yeah. yeah, with yeah. the exception of ProHealth, but the, oh, okay. the, the, that was a blip on the radar in terms of my time and, and my experience to that date. Mm -hmm. uh, so, that, yeah, this was a, the for-profit industry, very different management style, uh, more than an arm's length away from patient care in terms of the work that I was doing. So it was um, it was strange in that setting, uh, not not having... Not being able to see the immediate impacts of what you're doing in a patient care setting was uh, was different, but I found a challenge in terms of looking at the uh, getting more into the analytic side of health improvement seemed to be really interesting to me, and my job to come in was to partner with the the clinical uh, side of the house to better understand how we could tee up a product a reporting product uh, to our clients. So uh, we, we developed a, a reporting platform that was sold along with the, the service product uh, to our, our customer organizations. So what, what, was, what was the basic product that customers were buying from, from Health Dialogue? You said it was a nursing call? Center? Yeah, so, so what did they do? Yeah, so what would happen is a big health plan would look to essentially outsource their disease and demand management activity. Okay. So what would happen is that we would take their claims information, analyze it, and look for opportunities to reduce unwarranted variation. So uh, unwarranted variation is a term that was coined by David Wenberg, or John Wenberg, I think his father, John Wenberg, uh, from Dartmouth so many years ago. And it's the thought that there is variations in patterns of care that have nothing at all to do with medical needs. And, and these variations in care oftentimes are reflective of, um, of gaps in effective care approaches. So effective care is, is those standards that have been set in terms of best practices and gaps in those effective care approaches uh, is part of unwarranted variation, as is supply-sensitive unwarranted variation, meaning that if you, have, if you bring a supply of any healthcare activity uh, to a population, they'll use it. Right. In some cases, they don't need it. And so it's these types of things that create this unwarranted variation. And what we looked for in the data, 
to mine the data is to see where there is gaps in care, where we saw the impacts of both preference and supply-sensitive care, and to close those gaps by outreach to patients, better management of their care, helping them make shared, this whole idea of shared decision-making around care delivery, mm -hmm. um, which is basically informing a patient about what their options are. And, and helping the patient come to a shared understanding of what's best for them and their healthcare needs. Okay. So your function then was, this is where you, had you done this kind of analytic work before? I had. So, so the, a lot of the, the work that we had done at um, Tufts and at Elliott and even beyond that had to do with pay for, pay for performance, um, uh, essentially trying to understand the way in which a, a clinician performs in tying incentives, uh, financial incentives to those performance activities. So, in through doing that, it involves a great deal, great deal of analyzing of population health data to understand what care pattern norms look like. So you can figure out where there are opportunities for achievement, so to speak, in these pay for performance programs. Okay. And so that's that was kind of the basis by which I got interested in it. In so it. you'd been looking like at Tufts or maybe at, at, at the Elliott, you'd been looking at the way providers, what kind of services they provided, how that translated into revenues. Correct. And then you tried to improve those Correct. for the organization. Yes, and it, at one point I think it, at Tufts, we, we uh, a group of us from New England Medical Center played a part in an expert panel for developing a pay for performance structure for the state. And that was incredibly eye-opening because you have access to scads of data, not just your own, but through this panel, really the, the, the thought exercise of going through how do you really assess a population's health needs and what the potential is for an individual provider to impact that is the nature of the, uh, really, of, of what we, we were trying to do, both in Massachusetts at the time and with Health Dialogue. What kind of tools were you using and uh, to do that analysis there and then at Health Dialogue. Yeah, so, you know, as a, as a I threaten all the time to say I'm a technician, but I'm not. Um, the, the tools that we use for the most part were bi uh, business objects. Okay. So we brought in, we, we have large data warehouses that we used and use business objects as a platform uh, to do multi-phase analysis and all sorts of activity around this. We had statisticians that were helping us to understand uh, where we had true opportunity and where, where it was noise. So it's, um, you know, I, I'm glossing over the treetops of that, but the depth of, uh, of experience in terms of or resources that went into both staging, collecting, and analyzing the data health dialogue was truly remarkable uh, and something that made the analysis much more rich in terms of its findings. Where did you start picking up those skills, that knowledge? You know, it's one of those things it, along the way. It's it, 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 because there were needs both at, at all points of my career to store, manage, maintain, and analyze data that it was a need that I would never have guessed I would have ever known anything about in my career that because of this need and how it drove improvement, found that I had to become more and more involved in and become more and more aware of. Um, so as I began to hire analysts, a lot of them actually from UNH, uh, began to, to better understand 
talk about upward management, uh, better understand the analytic needs in terms of the technology support uh, required to, to get to help them get their job done and to help me understand uh, the, the answers to the questions that we're involved with at the moment. Okay. You left Health Dialogue Analytic Solutions to work for Accretive Health as a Senior Director of Clinical Partnerships. What was this job? Yeah, so um, the Health Dialogue ran into hard times, and, and so they've, they, they, they were bought out by a company called Bupa, um, a big insurance concern from health insurance concern in Europe. And so the, the analytic side of that house was, was wrapped up, essentially, and, and left with just the product. So I, I was looking for an opportunity to stay in New Hampshire and to try to expand my understanding of hospital-based revenue enhancement and revenue cycle. So it was something I, want, I, want, I found myself more and more interested in in my experience and, and really with the changes pending in federal, federally that this would be a major portion of my career <laughs> moving forward and I had to understand more about it. So luckily, Accretive Health is a consulting firm out of Chicago that does work at Dartmouth. And so they've been a, a partner with Dartmouth for probably at this point uh, seven or eight years. And uh, so I was hired to come in and help support their revenue cycle project program. And my specific role in this was to partner with the clinical leadership to understand how what they do in their operations would enhance revenue. And so, you know, that was a very different mindset from an improvement perspective, because the mindset prior to that I've had was more kind of holistic in terms of quality improvement, no matter what the point was. This had a very specific and sharp aim, which was to enhance and optimize revenue. Yeah. So, you know, the, the interesting places that it took us is, you know, one of the things that we were successful in doing in my time there is, is to transfer some of the the Medicare rev codes that relate to investigational services that they don't get reimbursed for into reimbursable codes. So there's these different types of surgical procedures that they don't get reimbursed for because they're, they're, they're considered by Medicare as being experimental. Okay. Clearly not could make it, we, you could make, and we did a debate that these are no longer experimental, but things that they should be reimbursed for. So is that that gives you kind of the flavor yeah. of the engagement that we were. So at. you were you were actually engaged with CMS Correct. to convince them, hey, these these things have been done long enough; they're no longer experimental. Correct. They're the standard of care. We should re- be reimbursed for Correct. this. Correct. So that was a function. One of the functions that you had. Was That's to right. Try to make that happen. Wow. Yeah. So it, was, it it felt at times much like a broker. Uh, so, you know, brokering a deal between Dartmouth and their clinical leads. Actually, at the time. The chief of transplant surgery was somebody I knew from my time at Tufts. Um, so he and I worked together very closely. Uh, he's now the, he was the chief of surgery there when I was there very closely to do this. He wanted nothing at all to do with, you know, the, the regulatory side of this and the, the federal side of this because he's busy doing surgery. Right, sure. So my, my role was to translate back and forth and to broker the deal. And I got to tell you, had a lot of experience with CMS in my past, and in this case, it was a very positive experience. Um, I think they, it, uh, they, they came to the table with a very wide open mindset. 
we presented them very clear evidence to this fact, and uh, I found the results to be refreshing. Now, this is not obviously a change the CMS was making just for Dartmouth. I mean, if they agreed this code was now a Correct. standard of care, it would apply to... Universally. Everyone. So what we were able to do is to get provision for Dartmouth first. Okay. And then they would take and roll that out subsequently to uh, across the nation. So is that a standard way that, that, that such codes are done? I don't know. That's a very good question. I don't know. Okay. I had never done this type I, I, of work I would have before. thought, okay, we've approved it, and it would have just automatically been yeah. for everybody. But I, in my mind's it's eye... A, it's a stepwise process of some sort. In my mind's eye, I always envisioned it as being a function of something like the FDA, right. where there was a, you know, a bunch of very smart people around the table thinking about which of these codes ought to be reimbursable and which of are truly investigational, informed by maybe the AMA or whomever. And I'm sure that's the case. I, you know, I know the AMA is actively engaged in that. But it was, that's why it was very much a surprise to me to, you know, to have somebody raise their hand in the, in the provider community and have CMS listen uh, was, we were not AMA. You know, it was it was really a refreshing experience. Nice. Well, you didn't really stay with Accretive all that long. No. Uh, so, a guy that I've known for a long time, Dr. Gottlieb, Larry Gottlieb, has uh, I've worked with him at Harvard Pilgrim, at Health Dialogue, and he left the same t around the same time I did for the same reasons, Health Dialogue, and he went to Commonwealth Care Alliance okay. in Boston, and. Um, he called me and said, geez, this is a great opportunity. Let me tell you about Commonwealth Care Alliance. And, you know, I was there within a matter of weeks after we met. It was, okay. it was just the opportunity that I couldn't pass up. So this was 2011. Mm -hmm. And you, became, you were brought in as the vice president for business intelligence and analytics. I was brought in as, um, or you, I was, was brought in as the director of clinical informatics. Okay. And my job was to build a BI shop, a business intelligence shop. Okay. Uh, so at the time, you know, Commonwealth Care Alliance was a small organization growing quickly and needed to really flesh out its uh, analytic capacity. So within a year, we built this BI shop, or two years, I should say, we built this BI shop and I took the position I'm in now. Okay. So what was the opportunity? How was the opportunity presented to you? You said it really was so enticing. It, it is. It. it was and it is. So um, Commonwealth Care Alliance has been around since about 2004, started by a cohort of people, including Bob Master, Lois Simon, and others who have had a real interest in changing the way primary care is delivered across the country. And he was able to, it's a long story, but he was able to convince Medicare and the state Medicaid office that, that if, if they would essentially turn the reins over to Commonwealth Care Alliance, that they would transform the way primary care is delivered to our most at-need populations. So at the time, that was our over 65 duly eligible, Medicare, Medicaid, duly eligible folks who are, who are obviously underinsured or if not uninsured, and have huge gaps in their care, in their terms of their primary care, for a number of reasons, socioeconomic, you know, all sorts of other reasons that, have to, that, that are barriers to care. So when we talk about dually eligible, you, you were just saying both Medicare and Medicaid. Correct. 
So just briefly, uh, we've, I've, we've talked about Medicare and Medicaid a couple of times in prior podcasts, but mm-hmm. just very briefly talk about those two programs so that we understand what they are and how they're different. So the, the Medicare programs in, uh, on a state-by-state basis are, are really aimed at fo- folks who have a financial need that, um, that meet a financial threshold in terms of needing and getting provision to and access to care. So it's mostly driven, although there are some circumstances where it's not directly driven uh, by financial need. And the Medicare program is obviously something that we all participate in. We pay into the Medicare program and when we age to 65, we become eligible for Medicare services. Okay. So this dual approach, right? So it's both the Medicare and Medicaid population who are duly eligible, both have a financial need and a proven financial need that qualifies them for the Medicaid piece okay. and are over 65 and, yeah. and as such they qualify for the Medicare piece. Okay. And you can also be permanently disabled and qualify Correct. for Medicare. So it must be a significant portion of your population as well. It is, yeah. So, so more so now um, because of our expansion into an under 65 population. So the core of our business had been up until two, October of 2013 over 65, duly eligible. Okay. A portion of those were a disabled population. Okay. When we now, through a federal demonstration project called OneCare, expanded to under 65, the proportion of our membership that's now in that disabled category is much, much greater. Okay. But all in all, the same issues apply. You have the socioeconomic issues, you have the, the, the fractured access to care issues, and what Commonwealth Care Alliance does is that we get a single payment from the government, from, from MassHealth and Medicare, and it's our responsibility to care for all their primary care needs. So we have an enhanced primary care model where we have nurse practitioners who are actually caring for members at their home. They do home visits, do all the primary care in their home, Oftentimes, if they have a primary care uh, clinician, it's in partnership with them. And we've seen, um, especially in our SCO program, the, the comparisons to traditional Medicare Advantage plans. What is a Medicare Advantage plan? Is, is, is a, it's basically Medicare HMO. Okay. So for folks who are over 65, they're in a Medicare Advantage plan. Traditionally, much less fragile, much more able to engage in their care needs. So when we look at the comparisons between a fragile and an elderly fragile community like we have and at Commonwealth Care Alliance and the Medicare Advantage plans, the performance in terms of readmissions, the cost of care is remarkable by this enhanced primary care methodology. Okay. So you're saying they could potentially have both a primary care provider as well as uh, the nurse practitioner that you have going out to their home. Correct. So, so how does that happen? If, if they're signed up with, do they sign up with you? Do they, they agree to, yes, I'll get my care through? Correct. So okay. the, in the over 65 population, it's like any other plan. So yeah. we market and yeah. they find out about Commonwealth Care Alliance and it's offered to them and they have to select in, so to speak. Okay. On the under 65 population, it being a demonstration project, there was a certain amount of, of 
what they call involuntary enrollment, okay. where where you weren't required to do anything, but you were being put on the rolls for receiving care from one of a few different plans who were participating. Didn't mean you had to actually engage in it. It just meant that you were qualifying for it and that these plans would reach out to you to engage in it. Okay, you mentioned a minute ago Medicare and MassHealth. MassHealth is the name for Medicaid Correct. in Massachusetts. Correct. Right? So the Commonwealth Alliance is a Massachusetts-based Correct. firm. Correct, right? just in Massachusetts. Just in Massachusetts, okay. So tell me a little more about the, the, the it's, is it just primary care? So you get a, you get a capitated payment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if I ha- if I was seventy years old, so qualified for Medicare, I was poor, so that I also qualified for Medicaid, and I saw and you sent me a a letter saying, hey, you qualify for our, you know, to participate in our program. What would then? Ha- and I said, yes, I want to do that. What would then happen? Good question. So the the very first thing we do is an assessment. So okay. we'll, we'll 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 reach out to you and. It's actually one of the challenges with the One Care project, the One Care demonstration project, because a lot of the, the members in that population, the patients in that population, are homeless, and oh, wow. okay. trying to find them to engage them is often a challenge in and of itself. That aside, though, the the, the process is that we engage with the member, go out and do an assessment, a clinical assessment of their needs, both behavioral health and and medical health needs. And then we begin to write a care plan for them. So if they have a primary care physician, this is all done with, in cooperation with them. We bring the care plan to them to look at the member, the pay, uh, sorry, the provider. We all agree on what that care plan ought to be. And we begin to implement that. One, one of the, so you might be wondering, why do they need someone, a, a nurse practitioner to see them in their home and to a primary care physician? Sure. In most cases, that some of these members are nursing home certifiable. Most of the cases of our over 65 population, um, just by looking at the data, qualifies them to be in a nursing home. So if you think about that, there are transportation issues. A lot of times they they do have some type of disability, physical disability that they can't get out of their own home to go see, uh, to make it to the provider's office. And that's where these gaps in care begin to grow because they can't physically access the care model that's been put in place. So even though they have insurance, essentially, and it's the Medicare and Medicaid that they, they have it, they just can't get to... They can't access even, even though it would be essentially free, perhaps, or close that's to right. free, they can't physically get there for some reason. Correct. Okay. So what you end up seeing is this uh, roller coaster of needs. So there's a building acuteness of their need by their onset or continued growth of their chronic condition or an acute issue happens, they fall, they end up in the emergency department and an inpatient stay occurs and then they'll go back and convalesce somewhere and until the next time it happens. And they get discharged, go back home. That's and, right. And then they get sick again and they still can't access and so. Exactly. Eventually and we call 911 and. Correct. And it you know, slowly degrades their overall health as well. Okay. So in this case, we evaluate the patient's home you know, if, let's say they're asthmatic. What's nice about our capitated model, there's nothing that we can't do. It's not that we do everything or mm-hmm. want to do everything. Sometimes mm-hmm. that's not appropriate either. But if we, if we need to buy a, a patient a better air conditioner 
or a new carpet because their carpet has mold spores in it that's exacerbating their uh, COPD or whatever issue that might be. That's something that we can do. In traditional plans, they don't have the access to that because there are Medicare guidelines about what they will and will not reimburse for. Definitely not new carpets. In, in, right, I mean, right. Okay, but yeah. you could do that. You, right. Because so you've been given this pot of money and it's up to you to spend That's right. It. And our aim is to keep our members living at home and, and not in a nursing home. We believe okay. that that's the best possible place for our patients to be is in their own home setting and enjoying okay. their life. So you, you said it was for primary care. The, mm -hmm. the payment you received is for primary care. But what if you determine that this this person needs something more than primary care, oh, specialty they're, visit? They're pri what we deliver is primary care. What okay. we get paid for is everything. Okay. So, so that means we're for, for everything. Whole, yeah. Their whole... A anything that happens to that member, we're responsible for for covering those services. So inpatient services, everything. So you have a strong incentive to keep them out of the hospital. Correct. Because Absolutely. you pay for that if they go. Absolutely. Okay. That is definitely the case. Okay. So who goes to the home to do this this evaluation? Is it, you said, a nurse practitioner? Or nurse practitioner. Or teams well, both. Sort? So we have, at times, um, we have nurse practitioners. We have behavioral health specialists who are social workers, LSWs, all sorts of other folks who wrap around, so to speak, the, clinician, the, the patient's needs. We have PTOT services, if that's what the patient needs. But it starts with the nurse practitioner to go out and, and do the assessment. And from that, the care team grows around the member, depending on what their needs are. We have a really great, actually back to my own roots, health education department, who also will do outreach. For example, we see some members who, quite honestly and quite sadly, are just lonely. They, they don't have, they're depressed. They don't, they don't have the experience in their community uh, to keep them motivated and moving. Uh, so one of the things that we'll, the nurse practitioners regularly will refer to is our own community-based health education efforts. Get members out into the community, even if it just means finding someone to walk with them a couple days a week. Getting, getting, getting them into adult day health programs so they can socialize with their peers. Uh, so the, the, the impact of that from uh, the reduction in, in the onset and, and, and progression of depression has a definite improvement on their overall health needs. So we can be a much, lot more creative about how we, uh, how we choose to care for a member than in any other health setting, a healthcare setting. Wow. I, I could see where that, you know, just paying to get somebody from their house to a daycare center, for example, could potentially significantly improve their health status. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you take a big step back from all of this, Mark, what you see is a model that looks eerily similar to the accountable care organizations that, that are in Obamacare, right. right? So it's one capitated fee that you're paying an organization to care for a population. And that's actually what drew me to CCA, to Commonwealth Care Alliance, is that, boy, you can see this train coming down the track of, of how this new reimbursement methodology is going to change the way medicines delivered and, and paid for and managed. And this, this organization has been doing it since 2004. And to me, that was, from an analytic perspective, an, an enormous opportunity. So let's, let's, uh, we've talked about the organization and kind of its, its business. What do you do? 
So we have an embarrassment of riches because of who and how we operate in terms of data. Okay. So when I was at Tufts or the Elliott, we had a ton of clinical encounter data to look at, right? You could manage and look at all that information and glean a lot from it. When I was at Harvard Pilgrim or the Blues in North Carolina, we had all the claims data, but we didn't have the clinical encounter data. So at where we are now, we have both. So we see both the clinical encounter data, the, the, the depth of that clinical encounter data in terms of what drugs they've been prescribed, how they filled it, all the lab tests, everything in between all their assessments done and all of their claims experience. And that's a huge wealth of information that we model in order to better understand what trends are going to take place in this population moving forward, what our care strategies ought to be, what's worked, what hasn't worked. Um, we use it also to inform our lobby and looking for uh, payment reforms and, and tr trying to get the CCA model of care more well known throughout the, throughout the nation and throughout the state, honestly, yeah. to, to show people that this model does work and is effective in what we do. Okay. So can you give me an example of the kind of problems that you've been solving using analytics? Yeah, so one of the things I didn't mention, Mark, is, is that in terms of analytics is that the CCA is growing, right? So we started as a small company with a dozen or so employees, and now we're almost over a thousand employees. Wow. And, and it's grown very quickly. And so you can, you can imagine the operational complexities that, that goes along with that doubled in size, tripled in size in October of 2013, overnight with OneCare, relatively overnight within the span of a few months. But so the operational logistics that that requires calls for the analytics to better understand how to, how to analytic capacity and reporting capacity, frankly, to move that information around, to put it in the hands of the clinicians in a more timely way, to inform all sorts of our the corners of the operation. So the BI group, we do a lot of out for, outward facing analytics to inform you know more more kind of high end strategic level analytics around um, where our model of care is going and what its impact is. But we also do <laughs> call wait times for our member our, our our member services call center. Everything in between. Okay. So we're a, a one stop shop for operational, strategic analytics, medical analytics, medical economics for the organization. So you say outward facing, that's kind of your telling your story to the rest of the world. Right. But you're also generating information that can then drive processes exactly. in, inside the organization. So what kind of product, so you just mentioned one would be something like call wait time. So if I'm the call center manager, you're sending me a regular report saying, you know, we've observed this this amount of wait time, maybe some sort of outlier data that I'd mm -hmm. be able to look at standard deviations or something. Right. So, I mean, are, am I then, if I was the manager, do I have some sort of interface that I can go and look further at, and do more analysis? Or do I call somebody in your shop to say, help me Both. identify who on, on my team is not performing or Both. is an Both. outlier? Both. Or? Both. Okay. So, so we, we, we've purchased and set up can systems that wrap around things like our nurse call center. So we have a telephone system that comes with an analytics suite. And so the basic statistics they can get on their own, not our nurse call center, I'm sorry, our member services center. The basic statistics they have on their own, 
they, they can look at right, right in front of them. But there's always the next question um, where that's requiring more in-depth analysis and in, in diving into the information. For example, when we started OneCare, we're not reaching any of our members. <laughs> Why aren't we reaching any of our new members? They're, we can't get a hold of them. We don't have good phone numbers. When we call, they're out of service. We dig into the data, really drill down and say, aha, it's because these members are transient. They, they, they're, a lot of them are homeless and they use track phones. And because of that, they're kind of disposable phone numbers. So we got to look for a better way of doing things. And what we did in that case is partner with our pharmacies, the pharmacies in the community. We know the member. We know that they've filled, they've filled prescriptions before in the past. We call the pharmacies. We tell, tell them who we are and that we should have this information because we're their provider now assigned by the state or they've enrolled with us. And, and then they can help us track down that member so we can engage with them. So just from that one question of how do we better get a hold of our members, the analytics that goes into eventually, and research goes into eventually getting a hold and touching the member in terms of an assessment. Okay. What does the phrase predictive and what does the phrase prescriptive analytics mean? <laughs> so, What's the difference? So prescriptive analytics has more to do with trying to divine an appropriate approach for one thing over another. So if the question is, should we do X or should we do Y? That the, the prescriptive analytics is going to answer that question. Much as if you go to your doctor and they assess you and say, you need this drug and not that drug. Okay. The predictive analytics is to say, we think this event may happen in the future. And so it's put it in the same analogy that your clinician may look at you and decide, that boy, you're in an early on stage. You're in the early phases of an on stage diabe uh, of, of diabetes. You, you need to change what you're doing, right? So it, it's more predictive based on what you see in front of you today. And so that's that's the core differences that we, we use in, in terms of in okay. those terms. How are you using predictive analytics in particular? Imagine that's where is that is that where the it uh, is. real money to be made is. It is the, the money and the insight for sure. So we know we use our, uh, our own experience and experience that we get from the state for our OneCare members to predict where they're going to be down the road in terms of their healthcare needs. So you know we're, we're, we're just now beginning to understand more about what those needs are with more experience in the OneCare product, the under 65 population. We know a lot more about the over 65 population because we have a lot more experience with them. So we're able to look at it without getting into the details. We, we, we're able to look at it and we can say from day one to let's say six months out, here's what the, a member's profile of utilization and cost is going to look like unless we intervene. And once we intervene, we believe based on predictive analytics that their, their experience is going to drop to X or Y. And so it gives us a, an understanding of how to prioritize members for outreach and what interventions we should take. Okay. You came into the field of analytics kind of just as it was really, seem, seems to me, it's just kind of... I, I agree. You, you've been there as it's been born and, and, and is coming into, its, into its, its maturity. How have you seen analytics become integrated into decision making in organizations over your career and how has it changed? Yeah, I think uh, CCAs are really a good microcosm of, of, of the way the entire sphere of healthcare is going. 
So there, there seems to be no end to the appetite for need for deep analytics. And I think what's happening is because there's more interest in capturing more and more data points, you know, across the healthcare industry, that it's led to much more available data for study. And, you know, so almost back to the supply sensitive nature of things, you create the supply, the demand will grow with it. Sure. And I think that's what's happening here. And, and certainly the case with the onset of EMRs, uh, the more uh, portable information, if you will, uh, on the clinical side, tied with the claims information, set up against the need to better manage populations because of a trend for paying a capitated fee, is just increased the need for this, the understanding of how to manage a population well uh, exponentially. Did you face challenges from skeptics? And, and um, how did you overcome those challenges? Yeah, you know, in, in my career or just at CCA? In, or in your career? In my career, yeah. So I think... I imagine it's changing. I imagine people are kind of being overcome by... Uh, yeah, absolutely. Being brought on board now, but yeah, probably a, earlier. Absolutely. And so it, there's, I can remember a number of times, um, a blurry 7 a.m. meeting with the Department of Surgery going over post-op wound infection rates in, a, in one of their staff meetings and showing all sorts of slides and statistics and just seeing, you know, dead air. Not that they're not interested, but what they'll remind you is they know of every single post-op wound infection they have. So they don't need to be told from an analyst that this is what's happening. Um, and I think the same people now sitting in the same room have gotten infused with the understanding and imbued with the understanding that, that there's incremental in knowledge that's, imp that's, that's created by looking at data over time. And they're now coming to the table to say, don't tell me about that patient. Tell me about the trend that I've seen in the last 12, 24, 18 months and what I can do about that. And so I think what's ended up happening is the, 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 the pushback that we've seen from on the clinical side is, is, is dried up, both because it's, it's tied to their own reimbursement. And, and I think even beyond that, it's tied to their understanding that analyzing data in this way can lead to real substantial improvements for their patients. So that's one big hurdle that I've seen. I no longer have to beg a, a chair of a service to sit down and meet with me. It's oftentimes my phone rings in, from them wanting us to, to be more and more involved. So that, that's a, definitely a seed change. Okay. Your position is, is tied specifically to analytics. Do you see a, a time when Analytics will just be another tool in the organization. So the, the, the kind of very simple metaphor I would use is something like once upon a time we had typing pools and, yeah. and, and word processing pools, and now everybody just does their own thing. Yeah, so it, it's, it's one of the things I joke about constantly with my staff is that we, we are striving to put ourselves out of business. And in, you know, the same thing is true in, in quality improvement as well. So one of, the, one of the objectives in what we do is to bring information out to and in the hands and available to the end user so they don't need to come to the typing pool right they they can do it themselves in a word processor and so th this it's the same approach that we're trying to build front-end tools so they can engage the data in a way that they don't need to be a programmer they can ask it questions and it will give them answers that reduces the amount of ad hoc requirements of the BI team and we can do more of the advanced analytics. 
So much of what we're trying to do is to push out some of the day-to-day -day stuff that you know takes us 10 minutes, but if, if you pile a thousand of those things up, it's a, it's a big chunk of time. Yeah, it's all you wind up doing. Right, and push all of that out to the front-end user and, and have us reserve for the bigger, wider, longer-term analysis. Let's shift gears and talk a little bit about leadership. Sure. As a vice president, you hold a leadership position. Uh, can you kind of summarize your personal leadership philosophy? Yeah, absolutely. I think from my perspective, the, the core mission of the organization has got to be what propels you. So, and sometimes that's a struggle in an organization, trying to figure out what is its core mission and what are their critical success factors, so to speak. So. From, from my end of things, it's understanding those at the, at the determination level of what you do on a day-to-day -day basis. So what can the BI unit do to support whichever of the critical success factors are going to make the company I work for successful? And so having that direction at the top of the organization, at the top of its strategy, translated through to the day-to-day -day operations of a unit is really important because it ties together my ability to make headway um, in, in, in achieving those goals to even the performance management of my staff. And so people have a clear understanding of what our direction is, why we're heading in that direction, and what the achievement is supposed to be. So I, in, a lot of, as I said before, a lot of the, the mentors I've had in my career have led in that way. So it's not just, we are going to do this. This is where we're going. It's, this is why we're doing it. This is why the, the way in which we're doing it's important. And so the, the, you get a buy-in at a much, much deeper level than you do by being more directive and, and less kind of uh, explanatory in your leadership. Was there a leader along the way that you really respected and tried have tried to emulate in your career? Many, yes, yeah. Okay. yeah. Can you so, give me an example? Yeah, and so you don't have to name a name if it's not. But no, no, no. Feel, so, feel um, absolutely, Ellen Zane was the CEO of of Tufts for of Nemec for many years, and she came in probably a year after I got there, and I just thought she was from a leader's perspective. I still have in a, some notebook in my office the six gems that Ellen taught me literally in her office one day we we're talking about leadership and I asked her what are the six gems and you know I have them written down in my little notepad okay. um, still to this day I can see it but what, what she really brought to the table was the ability to communicate really well with folks and that was meaningful so she could get up in front of the rank and file staff and engage them in a discussion about what's important in the organization and to deliver sometimes not great news in a way that didn't seem overly steeped in gravity, <laughs> that, that seemed somehow encouraging and, um, and in different engagements were, was able to be very directive but do it in a way that was respectful and, and, and effective. And so it's the personality style that she has and, and the way in which she communicates with folks. And frankly, her frankness and, and how she communicates, I found really effective. So are these things that you've tried to emulate yourself? And yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And some of them very consciously. Okay. Um, it's which sometimes you emulate folks just because that's, you, you, that's what you've learned and it's kind of subconscious. 
uh, but some of them very, very consciously. Okay. What do you look for when you hire subordinate leaders? Good communication style. First of all, they got to have the, the the opening skill set. So that gets them in the room, right? And, and I think that's true of all of us. You got to have the skill set just to get in the room to have the chance at a, a position. But really, their ability to communicate and engage with what we consider our customers. So uh, I've always taken a very customer-oriented approach in some ways or another, either in quality or in analytics or in BI. We're essentially an internal uh, consulting firm, if you will, to the organization. So we have sure. customers mm -hmm. and our success, their success is ours and vice versa. And we, we take a very strong approach at protecting that customer service uh, idea. And so I look for folks who have uh, share that mentality that um, we're there to serve our customers and internally in the organization. Um, that's really important, and I find that with that, it begins to hiring the right person who has that skill set further uh, propels the organization, the department in that direction. You mentioned mentors. You've had a number of good mentors through the through the course of your career. What does a good mentor do? Well, I think a good mentor is going to offer their experience and feedback and make it available to you. But they're not going to turn you into what they are, right? So a lot of the discussions I have with new managers as I hire managers into the organization, we talk about managers, managing styles. Part of that, it's, it's a mentoring arrangement in, in my book. And I think a lot of times the discussion for new managers is, well, what is the right management style? Well, there isn't a right management style. There's the right management style that's right for you and or for an organization. And it's important to have a management style and to have it be a constructively thought out process and concept that you're espousing to. So I think oftentimes what happens is managers will go out there and they'll grab a bunch of concepts and then they'll bundle them together and call it the way they do things. But it's really not their personality and it seems forced so I think it's, it's a matter of someone understanding how they communicate with people well, being able to use whatever communication style and management style that works best for them, but is in line with the organization. And a good mentor will, a good mentor will pull that out of somebody, that will, will be able to work with someone, understand what their strong suits are, and pull out from them and expose what management style or uh, effectiveness leadership style that they have. Interesting. Do you have folks that look to you as a mentor outside, outside of your immediate supervisory chain? Yeah, so one of the nice things about where I work now and actually in a couple of other places, we do have peer mentor programs, which is, is, is a difficult thing sometimes, but uh, it turns out to be because it, with your peers, how do you mentor a peer? It, that, that can be a, a tough nut to crack, right, because they're a peer. Um, but it, it, it works well because I think it's not about whether you or I know more or less about any one thing. It's about I have skills and experience that are different than yours. What can you, have, what can you take from me and what can I take from you uh, to elevate us so both? Is this a formal program from your yeah, organization? Yeah, so we do it so often. Paired with somebody that's a colleague level? Yeah, so it's not all the time, okay. but it is from time to time. And... Uh, it's it's usually to because some, one of us want to expand our knowledge of one thing or another. 
so I've so had, it's something you volunteer for. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Okay. And you raise your hand, say, "I want to know more about that," and you're paired up with someone and be able to uh, there act as a mentor for you in the, in that different area. Right. And it often goes both ways. Okay. From time to time. Neat. So in closing, if someone listening to this podcast thought, you know, hey, what Greg does sounds really cool, what advice would you give them? What should they be doing looking for training? Um, what skills should they be looking for? And kind of what jobs should they be pursuing? Yeah. So I, I think the, the, the one thing that I can see is that was most impactful in being effective in this role is to understand the operations of healthcare. It, it's it's it, 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 the, the room gets dark quick when you don't understand the way in which the analytics that you're doing impacts the actual organization's operation. So it's very hard to be intuitive and anticipate need if you don't understand an operation. So one of the advice, pieces of advice I give folks that are searching to be in a role like this and, and develop into, a, into an, a fully-fledged leader in analytics or something like that is to get involved with a corporate department like Quality Improvement because they see everything. So by the very, or performance improvement, by the very nature of what they do, they touch every corner of the organization from finance to clinical operations to supply chain management, everything. So it, it really gives you a bird's eye understanding of how the, uh, the organization operates. So when you turn your attention to really understand and, and spend time analyzing any piece of that equation, you understand how it fits in the partnering and adjacent uh, facets of the organization. So quality improvement for me is just, you know, it, it was a great place for me to cut my teeth in the industry. Neat. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to the Health Leader Forge, a joint production of the College of Health and Human Services at the University of New Hampshire and the Northern New England Association of Healthcare Executives. Please go to our website, healthleaderforge.org, for more information or to leave comments about today's podcast. Look for Health Leader Forge podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other podcast distribution sites. Thanks for being a part of the Health Leader Forge community, and we'll talk with you again in about two weeks.